Hey, everybody, welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com, and that includes our 2021 Winter Buyer's Guide, which you should definitely check out, and you will also be able to find there the newest deals and see all of the other benefits that we have for our Blister members. And so to check all of that out, just go to blisterreview.com and click on the navigation bar where it says become a Blister member. It's all quite straightforward. Okay, today we are launching a new segment on the Blister podcast called Reviewing the News with Cody Townsend. And in short, we're really excited about it. Now, Cody and I open our conversation here by talking about how this idea got hatched in the first place. And then the gist is that we are going to be discussing some of the biggest stories and most interesting news headlines from the world of outdoor sports in particular. But we also reserve the right to veer off into broader media stories when we feel like discussing them, such as the rise and spectacularly fast fall of Quibi. And then we are going to conclude each episode by talking about some of the best things we've watched or read or listened to. So we may introduce you to some great new stuff and we invite you to share some of your favorites too that you think we ought to check out. And the same goes for news stories and events. If there is something that you think should be on our radar and that you'd like us to discuss, let us know in the comments section of the show notes to the episode on the Blister website. Finally, in the show notes to each episode, we will also include links to the articles that we reference so you can check those out for yourself. And with that, let's get to this first episode of our new Blister podcast segment, Reviewing the News. Here we go. Well, Cody Townsend, good morning. Here we are in something that I guess the initial idea for this got hatched. Truly, it got hatched, I think, as I was just literally about to drop you off at the airport after your recent visit here to the Gunnison Valley. We'd had such a good several days of conversations that it was like, you know, we should really figure out how to sort of keep this going. There was some back and forth and it led to this idea of us kind of talking about some of the things that were happening in the news, probably a lot of outdoor focused stories, but not merely that. Is that fair? Is that the origin story here or how would you? I think it even started before that when we were talking and I kept bringing up that like there's not enough podcasts in the outdoor spaces talking about ideas. Um, I just, there was a lot of, you know, just, Hey, interview, here's your life story. Next, next guest. And so we just kept talking about that. And then we had great conversation. And then we were talking about some of our, uh, media that we are obsessed with. And we're like, you know, something like this needs to be in the outdoor space. So we are taking a stab at that. I think right now, uh, to do something a little different, to kind of do uh, a little podcast. That's a little more about ideas. And I think what we're going to be doing today is talking about pretty much the biggest stories, the biggest 
biggest headlines of the outdoor world. Obviously, it'll have some ski focus, but I think overall it's going to be outdoor focus and just kind of kind of go through some of the stories and, you know, what our takes are because I felt like, you know, it'd be interesting to hear some analysis of of what's going on in the world as opposed to just uh, media that's just talking to other humans. So, yeah, this is our first stab at it. It's going to be, I think, a uh, a work in progress and uh let's uh I, I think we should kind of get right into it i think we started with uh five kind of stories that we picked out and the stories of that kind of i think define the last month i know we're in the middle of november but we're going to hopefully do this once a month kind of go through some of the, the the five stories that are defining defining this month and the outdoors so yeah let's i'd say let's just get into it my first story that i kind of proposed was talking about emily harrington and her free climb of golden gate up on el capitan in 24 hours which has made headlines all the way to the New York Times. Uh, BBC covered it. I mean, it's a, it's huge news, and it truly kind of it matches the the accomplishment of what it is. And you know, Emily's a, a friend of mine, so I know her, um, and seeing what she's gone into it. And I mean, this is two years in the in the making. She almost like she almost died last year doing this. Um, there's some crazy stories to it. So I, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool story. And to make it in the, the major news is, is I think it's rad when, when outdoor news makes it to the New York times. So, you know, Emily's climb, the main story I point to is Andrew Bishart and he wrote for outside. Um, he was kind of did the best synopsis of it, in my opinion. And, you know, outside is obviously in the outdoor space and Andrew, is a climbing journalist. Uh, He writes for a lot of the major news sources like New York Times, Washington Post. He's kind of like the the writer on duty if there's a climbing story. But he ended up writing a story in Outside. And what it kind of summates is that Emily... Over the course of the last couple years, she had climbed Golden Gate, was, I think, fourth or fifth female to climb it, to free climb it. And then she started dreaming about doing it in 24 hours. And there's very few people in the world that actually climb El Cap in 24 hours. And there's only ever been three people before her, all males, that have climbed the Golden Gate route specifically um, in under 24 hours. And that list is it's pretty ridiculous. It's Alex Honnold, Tommy Caldwell, and the late Brad Gobright. So probably like three of the best El Capitan climbers of all time. And then she just put her name on that list. And, you know, some of the stories that we pointed out that it was incredible to make it, like the year before she would tried to do this, she fell while they were simul climbing, meaning like they're not, it's a form of climbing that's pretty it's sort of safe, but it's not really that safe. You're, you're tied into each other. You're moving together and you put pieces of protection in to kind of catch in case of a fall, but it's also, it doesn't catch you that well. Well, Honnold actually caught her with his hands. So he grabbed the rope, burned his hands and caught her as she slipped and fell. The rope wrapped around her neck. She ended up succumbing to some pretty harsh injuries and had to be life flighted off that. She ended up being okay, but it was like a really scary moment. Then, you know, a year later, she's going for it again. While she was doing this attempt, she ended up falling again. 
slamming her head on on a like a crystal a little piece of rock and was just bleeding profusely out of it managed to pull herself together and still complete the climb like as it goes down this is like and you know the the signature achievement is obviously honold's free solo no rope class that's like the biggest thing to be ever done in the climbing world but this is like pretty up there and so it's pretty impressive and andrew really documents it but i think what we wanted to talk about too was this made major news and there was some pretty grievous errors (laughs) that it started coming out and it kind of got the entire outdoor community and the core climbing community pretty inflamed i mean so like what is your take on when there is outdoor stories making the New York Times and you know every single major news outlet and then there's errors in it what do you, I mean that it there's a debate around there what what is your take on it yeah i mean i've just found myself first and foremost you know as a media company like how difficult it is to start venturing outside of your specific area of expertise right and I think there is a thrill in that, but I think that there needs to be a real responsibility there where, you know, I mean, if you're really going to sort of dive into covering a story like that, you're just raising the bar. If that is outside of your wheelhouse, you've got to put in the extra work. And I, I don't know. I don't know. So I think we're, I think we are all susceptible to it. I don't know if let's say, you know, I don't want to name any particular papers here, but I mean, we see this all the time, right? Like, let's say that we see other outlets trying to write about ski equipment, like gear. It's like, yeah, that's the stupidest thing. And it's wrong in 18 different ways. And it's like, well, okay, but they're not an expert there. So should they just automatically like never venture into something outside of the wheelhouse? And I, I don't know, because it's fun to venture outside of the wheelhouse, right? That's how we all grow and expand and learn and the rest. So I'm going to volley this back to you. I mean, those were the immediate things that I have been thinking about as a content creator. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I kind of take it as like there's – I think it's important when these stories go big and go international. And then I think as a community, if there's errors, we were like, we try and protect ourselves. And unfortunately, a lot of this when, so the main error that was out there was the fact that it, the headlines were saying that she was the first woman to free climb El Capitan. And it was, she was the first one woman to free climb the Golden Gate route on El Capitan. So there's four other women um, being Steph Davis, um, Mayan Smith, Gobot, and of course the legendary Lynn Hill. And, but then people started raining down on Emily saying she was claiming it. And that's the only negative side of it. I was like, that's not cool. That's, but that's individuals and that's social media. To me, I think it's actually really cool and really important that these stories are going because it, it it's a gateway drug to to the actual like good sources of information so like you know let's say washington post is doing a ski review you're like whoa what's that and you kind of look into it well you're probably not going to go buy a pair of skis off a washington post review but you might be started to be thinking about buying skis and then you might find your way to blister at some point and so to me like I didn't take it as seriously that these errors that were out there nor do I take it as that a lot of people look at these errors and then they then question the entire media as a whole. 
you know, they're going like, oh, if they can't get this fact wrong, right, then all the other stuff must be must be wrong. And I think that's kind of BS because you're like, no, they didn't get this fact right because they're not experts in outdoors. And that's why they hire people like Andrew Bishart to write for them when they have those stories or even like a John Branch when it comes to it, because he understands our space as well. So to me, they're like, but they're actually pretty experts when it comes to politics <laughs> like they have 12 person departments working on just politics so to me like the little the little air in a headline you're like not that big of a deal just kind of look by it sure it was it was wrong but ultimately it will get corrected and then don't rain on emily for claiming it because it was it was that my whole thing with media too is like we talk about there's a lot of biases in media and everyone talks about biases, what's a, a liberal bias, what's a conservative bias, all that stuff. And there's only one universal bias, and that is money. These are for-profit companies. Every single operation out there that is in the media tries to make money. So what are they going to try and do? They try and get clicks. They try and get views. They try and get attention. So the only bias can be directed towards like what can make them money. And to me, this is that instance where you're like, well, it doesn't matter to us that the headline saying the first woman to climb Golden Gate doesn't quite as get as many clicks or as mm -hmm. attention as first woman to climb El Cap. So they're going to that's the bias in their in their way, um, kind of like directing it is that they want to have the first story and hey, they want it out there and they want it to be sensational. So, so two things I want to say to that. First, do you then think they knew what they were doing, that no. it was okay. So no. okay, I think that's a it's a byproduct of our the speed in media these days. Yeah, and I think it's a byproduct in the fact that like, you know, my mother who worked as a journalist for a newspaper, you kind of you have to write fast, but you still have twenty four hours to kind of check it before the print goes live, and you have multiple layers of copy editors going through those and fact checking editors. So like, you you still have a day to make sure everything's good. To me, the the errors like that are there because of the fact that they're like let's get this story live right now because it's, you know, like New York times just put it and we're Fox. We just got to put it over oh, BBC. We need to put it out there within an hour. So it's, to me, it's just like, it's kind of the speed and what we want as consu consumers of content. They're just trying to satisfy our needs. So I think it's just those like basic errors that they get overlooked because they're trying to go at things fast. Okay, so one, you don't think it was an intentional, like, let's dial up the clickbait. We know it's incorrect. The other thing, though, I definitely, definitely understand and am sympathetic with the speed play. But still, really, if you are somebody writing this story, you can't get one person to read this copy and correct those errors if we're if we're calling it a 24-hour window right if you're if you're qualified enough to write this piece there's no one in your world in the core climbing community to be like hey can you just make sure i'm not wildly wrong about some of the claims here and i do think that that's something that i kind of would like to see more of again with all 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 sympathies to like every media outlet out there that actually is trying to do things in a really legit way and also dealing with the need to be quick. But like, really, like, I mean, that's stuff that we do around here. Like if we are coming in to report on a thing where it is, it is not an opinion piece, but it's like, let's get the facts right. It's pretty easy for us to, to get to the right person 
right? At, at a true expert in that field to sort of sign off and make sure that we didn't, you know, make some egregious error. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I see that. And what the unfortunate thing is, one, yeah, I agree. Hire more outdoor writers. Like, you know, the story mainly got sourced from the AP. AP, you know, is like kind of the main source of news that people, uh, that media organizations will kind of subscribe to. They get the AP wire and it comes out and then they report on what the AP said. And the AP was the one that got it wrong right off the bat. So you're like, well, you know, the AP should have have an Andrew Bishart on call on salary or have a John Branch on there. Like New York Times actually got it right right off the bat, probably because of, you know, kind of their commitment to these kind of things. And the fact that they they work with someone like Andrew Bishart, they work with people like John Branch who cover climbing. So, yeah, I agree. They should strive to be better. I just don't I don't find it as grievous of an error, nor do I worry about it. I like the only thing I worry about is like don't rain down on Emily's social media for her claiming it, but that's up to the individuals being like, don't like, you got to question it too. You can't be like racing to condemn the BBC because they got the headline wrong while also then racing to condemn Emily for falsely claiming this or something. You're like, well, do it, do the fact check yourself, <laughs> you know? So, because there was the real facts were out there and Andrew's article on outside had all the, the, the facts out there. So to me, I'm like, eh, I just am like, I guess I'm a little more casual when it comes to that kind of stuff. I'm not as worried about like, oh, you got that wrong. I discredit everything you do and everything you say. Taking us in a bit of a different direction here, but still related to this story. I'm going to put you on the spot. Think about, say, the last three most recent outdoor sports related events that have gotten this kind of global coverage, what three would you name? So we've got Emily's Climb. Yeah, I would say it's all El Cap related. It's uh, Alex Honnold, Free Solos, and it's Tommy Caldwell's The Dawn Wall. Exactly. Those were my three as well. So what I want to ask you about here is like, I don't think this is a coincidence. Now, I hadn't been thinking about it so specifically in terms of El Cap, but I was thinking about it in terms of just climbing. I, my wife and I were talking exactly about this. It's like climbing, climbing, and specifically El Cap covers, it gets coverage because one, people can drive to the base of El Cap and millions of people do a year and they look up and go, whoa, and then people climb up it and then it like so it's understandable to a wide audience and then two it's not it's not like it's like sport climbing where you're like oh um so and so did the hardest sport climb in the world people don't understand that where it's like pretty like viscerally understandable to climb el cap oh it's three thousand feet and it's straight vertical and the pictures are incredible from it so um but like climbing in general i've always said it's like it's the best sport because what for for covering in media because of the fact that it like it contains the narrative and the story arc of every traditional story like there's the challenge there's the setting and then there's the the crescendo to the summit and then you're done you know and it's like Whereas like skiing, like for us, like even if you're ski mountaineering, you still climb, but you're still not even halfway done. You still, you still got to ski down. And when we cl claim things as like for ski descent, it's like they climb to the top. 
And then the story kind of keeps going on, like the crescendo, the apex of the story, like kind of goes too long for what works in media. So like climbing, Himalayan climbing and El Cap climbing are the only things that feel like I get covered. Like there's like no major media news about anything else. Like, you know, like I kind of laugh about it in a personal way because like the 50 is like exploded within the outdoor space. And it's got like, we've got like 6 million views of it and it fits all the stories of like, here's a list, there's 50 things and they're the like hardest badass lines in ski mountaineering in the world or in North America. And you're like, but it's not getting covered at all by major media. And I think it's just because you're like, well, nobody understands where these places are. Nobody understands like the significance of it. Like University Peak to us is as a skier is like RL cap. It's only been climbed and skied like twice. And yet, but you can't write about it because people are like, wait, what? I don't get it. It's an 8,000 foot ski descent. And like, I, you know, where's El Cap? Drive to the base, look at it, go, oh yeah, it's right there. So yeah, no, I've always laughed at that, that climbing gets covered in the outdoor space just more than about anything. Yeah. And think about this. I mean, your own most kind of, I guess, viral moment or kind of global moment was what? Yeah, it was the crack. And that was, but that was a video. Like it was really, you couldn't really write about it. Like it was just a video that people understood. And I've always pointed to it as people look at it as like the gnarliest line in the world. And I'm like, it actually, to me, was like the second scariest line I've ever done. But that was so understandable. You see the rocks, you see how narrow it is, and you see how you can tell how fast I'm going. But like, there's a line I skied, uh, what was it, four years before that, that I thought was gnarlier and more impressive to me. But you just don't, it didn't even win line of the year. And it was like kind of a thing you can't really understand it until you're there. So there's, that's, I think, where all the, why things in the outdoor space go, go big is like, you kind of has to be some sort of understandability and relatability to, to the average Joe. And El Cap has that, Everest has that. And very few other things in our outdoor space do. do. Yeah, I think it would be a cool thing. And, you know, a part, like I would say, our responsibility, I would use that word, those of us in outdoor focused media to try to continue to translate some of these things. I don't think it's a static bar or, you know, I think that if we are able to translate some of these things to a broader public, we could maybe move the needle a little. Now, that said, I I mean, I actually love, I think there is something when we're talking about like some of these things caught fire because they are so elemental, like so I think fundamentally human, so, so about everything in the human DNA and storytelling. So like I always think to me, Honold's ascent is the most epic thing ever because it is so it is so elemental you fall you die you know and it's like this is a hundred percent something that if we just snuck an extra chapter in to the iliad or the odyssey and it was exactly this no one would bat (laughs) an eye you'd be like yeah that's exactly fitting right and we'll hold up you know, to, to the, to the end of time. And I, I do love that. Like when we can connect, when we have these moments in the outdoor space that can transcend our worlds and catch fire with a broader 
more general audience, it is because there is something connecting at the deepest level of what it is to be a human that's really kind of cool. And to bring this back, I mean, props to Emily for for catching one of these moments and all of the time and the effort and the dedication and the fucking badassness of, of pulling this off. Super cool. Yeah, no, it's I I was texting with Emily after it and she's just like she's on cloud nine. This was one of her biggest achievements she's ever done. So congrats to Em because it was truly impressive and I'm I'm glad it made major headlines and bummed a little bit, but not too bummed that, you know, there's some errors with it because overall like it's impressive and it's really cool that the New York Times covered something like Emily climbing uh, El Cap. And I think that should probably lead us into our next story because we're talking about headlines and this is a race for headlines. And this is the second kind of story we'll go into one that defines this month is the race to open. So there's a story on local freshies uh, opening days here for ski resort openings in U.S. and Canada for 2020-21. Wild Mountain in Minnesota claimed first opening on October 19th. So snow, little snowmaking, little tiny hill in Minnesota, and they claimed they were the first to open. What is the point of this race to open? What is your take on that? Straight marketing. I mean, I think that like every company, every brand out there needs to find some angle or hook. And if this is the best hook you have, or, you know, if this is, yeah, if this is the best card you're holding or whatever metaphor you want to use, then I suppose you're going to play it. But what does it, does it actually move the needle? Like, I mean, we just mentioned Wild Mountain in Minnesota, which is probably the first right. time I've ever said those words, nor I've heard of that place. But does it actually move the needle? Like, does, you know, traditionally like A Basin or Loveland is the first to open? Is it like all of a sudden people are buying tickets and passes to, you know, A Basin and, and to Loveland? Like, I don't know. Like, to me, like, yeah, it's a, it's a PR play, but like, does it actually do anything? Does it match like the fact that you just spent $40,000 to make snow for a week to get a PR headline? Like to me, it's just a little, like, I mean, it's just a bit much like the, the marketing analysis of it. You're like how much money you spent to do it and what you got from it does not match up at all. The fact that it keeps happening every year, I would actually put as evidence that you're wrong. Because I I think that like, like I said, I mean, this is what they can hang their hat on. Now, the broader for the industry, I suspect that the rest of the industry is delighted to start seeing some of these stories coming out of so-and-so already opened. It's like, I, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I do think every year the broad, the industry at large is always worried or hopeful, right? We need to get people transitioning out of summer and riding bikes and really start thinking about skiing. And, you know, we know the economics of ski areas. Many of them are really making their money at a very few targeted specific times of the year, right? And so, Every ski area I'm aware of needs to have their bookings in for like the week of Christmas through New Year's, right? And so I see this kind of one on your question was, does it make sense for these specific ski areas? Perhaps that's a bit debatable, but I think that these stories make sense just helping prime the pump and getting people, you know, 
thinking about and salivating a little bit about skiing. And for the broad public, that means booking that trip from Christmas to New Year's. And we better have those lead-in stories, the stuff that they're reading about months and events, if that's going to happen. I, d- I don't know if that's exactly how it works, but... Yeah. No, yeah. And, I, you know, I've heard of those stats where it's like 30 to 50% of revenue is made over the holiday time. And, like, and I, I can see that importance as a whole. Maybe it's less on the individual, like I'm thinking, and more on the, the broader look. Because, as, as you said, it just kind of starts to get people thinking about it. And then, like, oh, yeah, it's October. I should book that, you know, that trip that we wanted to go on. So, so in that regard, yeah, I could, I could sort of see it. The funny thing with this, with this story in Local Freshies, too, is, what I saw on social media was that Wolf Creek is one of the ones that always kind of claims they seem to always have such good early season snow in Wolf Creek. They get a ton of like early season pow, but they claimed it as first this year and they put a big social media announcement as they were the first to open and whatnot and then people started clapping back at them and were like no wild mountain in Minnesota opened first. So that was kind of funny because you're like well now we're getting false claims and this race for it and you know it could have stuck and people would have been like oh okay cool but it it was wolf creek wasn't the the first it was the second and uh i think first in colorado which is important because obviously such a big base there but yeah i see what you i see what you're saying and i think i do put some credence on that because i know here in tahoe like we get rain early season and the and snow up here but if it rains in the bay area i've you know talked to the ski area here talked to squad and they're like yeah our bookings are starting to get filled and it's just like oh they got a little bit of rain and you see the news trucks at the base of the ski resort or at the um, donner pass at i-80 and they're filming the snow coming down and it does get people thinking about it i just think it's kind of funny that like we've seen a shift too where i it goes from these uh traditional first open lovelands and a basins and wolf creeks to now like i think last year was west virginia has a ski area that opened first and then this year is in minnesota so you're getting these like little mini players starting to come up and claim it and so yeah so congrats to wild mountain first open but i always laugh too because then here uh, timberline is sitting there like we're open always <laughs> Yeah, 12 months a year <laughs> like when our season doesn't end and yeah they do a little closing yeah. period in the spring and a little closing period in, in uh, the fall but it's like only a few weeks on either end and <laughs> I always laugh because they're like we've been open the whole time like when, when does it stop this like, is when, marketing when... this is why we've got to we've got to yeah. you know they need to do this like oh it's over we are done yeah like what is the date the cutoff date when does the season 2021 is it like September 1st and then like is if Timberline's open later than September 1st is it like are they the first to open or is it October 1st like where is this line where the season starts you know because because uh, <laughs> I, I feel like Timberline every year it every single year but they, they this don't is a, this um, is a good point so. by the way I don't want to go down this one too long here but I am curious we have yeah. talked a good bit at different moments on blister about like I would love to see a shift back. It seems like most ski areas around the world are trying to open and be open for Thanksgiving in the nor- in sorry, in the northern hemisphere, but it seems like we are seeing our season shift, right? Like Yeah. So now I know this gets complicated with forest service and the like, but is there any hope ever of 
shifting everything back to where we basically were opening resorts December 1st or even December 15th and then extending the season, right? Because every year or, or a lot of times, it seems like we're closing things when the spring skiing inbounds is like incredibly good. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the shifting of the ski season? Well, I'm a big proponent of it because I ski at Squaw and our spring season and we're always generally the latest in the Tahoe Basin to stay open. And like you're in May and you can get such good skiing in May. Yeah, I know Snowbird, their whole campaign for a while was the longest season in Utah and they were the same deal where they're pushing sometimes into June. The The thing about it and the challenge is I think it's just there's so many people that are not diehard that are only skiing between you know December and February and then they're going back about their normal lives. So to get that casual person to come up in April it is kind of difficult. I've always said like in Tahoe, like March and April are our best two months. Like we have full coverage. You get these like three inch storms of like just plaster perfect pow that's like completely smooths the whole mountain and you're just flying down and then nobody's around and it's like sunny by the afternoon and warm but you're skiing pow in the morning you're like this is amazing if only more people could experience that at the same time you're like you don't want them to because you're like it's so empty here and it's so good but no i i think there is uh, a few of the players are shifting that way you know you have your you, there's places like i mean jackson closes like the first week of April every year and they'll they've got max coverage then but they have to do it for elk closures in the national forest so there's some national forest leases that are difficult with that kind of stuff and you know I, I definitely would love to see more marketing for spring skiing because spring skiing is so awesome. so awesome there's there's so many things I think in in our marketing of skiing itself that like stick like that are antiquated like the fact that People still think like, oh, spring slop. And you're like, yeah, spring slop just kind of sucked when you were on 60 centimeter or 60 millimeter wide skis that were 210. But we're on fat skis and like they're really good skiing in April. And the, our technology makes it so much easier for everybody. So like, why do we keep proponing? Like, I hear people be like, oh, spring wet snow and it's crap. And you're like, no, it's amazing. Like, so there's this, there's these hurdles we still have to get over, I think, in, in kind of our sport. To, and we need more people marketing spring, like you're saying. So, but yeah, yeah, we should probably kind of keep, keep moving. Yeah. So otherwise, cause we could go deep. I mean, that's <laughs> the problem with this podcast. You and I could probably talk way too long. <laughs> so next story I picked out, which is a story I was quoted in, so I don't know if I'm uh, <laughs> uh, the best person to, to talk about it, but it was a San Francisco Chronicle story. Uh, the headline for it was, if, oh, it's actually, why is that popping up? But it was essentially, it was by Greg Thomas, who's an outdoor writer for the uh, SF Chronicle. And it's a story about how outdoor athletes are all of a sudden involved in the election and in politics. And I think we all know about the election. It's kind of dominated our headlines, but um, all of a sudden for the outdoor space, we're seeing tons of outdoor athletes talking about politics and athletes across all sports yeah. for the most part are kind of talking about politics now. And we've seen this massive shift And the article goes into what most people say is because of Colin Kaepernick, like being the fact that he was the first one to get on a national stage and do a very political social protest about police injustice and it kind of started before then it was definitely still the stick to sports mentality and now there's been such a wave they can't even say that anymore so you know the outdoor if you follow social media at all follow anyone 
in the outdoor space, you probably got at some point an outdoor athlete telling you to vote and sometimes telling you who exactly to vote for. I mean, what was your take on it? Like, in my opinion, like, I think I, I have my opinion. And it's obviously, if you follow me on social media, you know what it is, is the fact that I'm comfortable with talking about these kind of things, because it's kind of partly who what defines me. But like, it's also so in your face. And as an outsider, not on like the inside, like I am, I mean, what is your take of it see yeah i confess i mean we were so inundated with the go vote go vote and it's like we were got it okay yep gonna do that and so i i am sympathetic with the people who are like i i got sick and tired and fed up of that like okay i get you that's great but i actually find it pretty exciting that i think what we have happening now is there is a new expectation, I think, among athletes to explore issues, to have a clue, and to formulate an opinion. And I think that that actually will have a real impact and effect on the people who look up to athletes, whether they're football players, basketball players, skiers, runners, climbers, etc., I think that will move the needle a bit for, you know, the kid who lives wherever thinking, why is this person who's climbing I love or skiing I admire, why do they seem to care so much about this stuff that maybe I haven't really looked into? I actually view that as a positive development. You know, like you and I, I mean, there were, were a lot of athletes we idolized who we would never have heard anything from growing up like we would have had no clue where they stood on a certain political issue and if you said okay would you rather go back to that world where we just have no idea where anybody stands and furthermore to the when it's done really well right you hope that that athlete is saying something thoughtful about an issue so now i'm learning a bit more maybe about an issue i didn't know very much about but if you said, would you rather go back to a world where athletes just shut up and dribbled versus today? I'll take today. Yeah. I and I, I, I agree with that. And I kind of, I was actually quoted in this story, and this is obviously my take in it, but it was like, we didn't land on politics, politics landed on us. And because uh, I look at it in the way of like, okay, as an, as an outdoorsman, there's two things that are very relevant to what I do in the, the backcountry and in the outdoors. And it's one, climate change, because as a skier, obviously climate change is going to affect us. And then two is like the preservation of wild lands. And I point back to some of these stories of like, you look at uh, the vote for the Wilderness Act, which passed with one negative, one nay vote in Congress. And you're like that kind of bipartisanship doesn't exist anymore. Now, if you're talking about uh, wildland conservation, it becomes very political. And so like, I think it was kind of, we felt like all of a sudden we were forced to speak up about it because they're like, wait a minute, like these things we hold near and dear to our heart and our careers and our community, we have a voice for it. Like I can represent my Tahoe community with a loud voice of saying like, hey, we care about climate change. We care about the preservation of wild places. So we don't 
want to see National Forest Service uh, huge swaths be logged or mined and, you know, some of our backcountry just destroyed by the resource extraction or something like that. So to me, it was a little bit like politics has landed at us. Same time, I also found it kind of annoying because like it is a lot. It's so in your face and there's a point where you're like, are, are some of these people just doing this because it feels like an expectation to do it now? You're part of the in crowd. Some of the leaders of it, like let's say a Jeremy Jones or Conrad Anchor are talking about this and you idolize them um, and you are trying to align yourself as a professional athlete. Are you talking about it just because they're talking about it or are these things near and dear to your heart? Um, are you repeating like the company line or are you saying something that's important? Like one of the things that you try and point to is like, was there any outdoor athletes like advocating for, for Trump? You know, and I would have I would have loved to seen that and loved to seen that actually happen. And if Ben embraced it, because to me, I don't want it to be like you're embraced because you endorsed Biden and you endorsed liberal policies. You know, we're just saying, like, if you came out and you're an outdoorsman, you're skiered and you're like, I believe Trump is better for us because of such, such and such. And someone's like, OK, yeah, that's that's your take. Like then. And if the outdoor community then. I was like, that's fine. You can. We're trying to let you say what you want to say. Unfortunately, that didn't really happen. There was in, one instance of a professional snowboarder, Nicholas Mueller, who's been advocating for Trump. And he actually got dropped by all the sponsors. But it wasn't because he is advocating for Trump, because he was promoting very, he's like a Q follower, saying some pretty racist stuff and some pretty horrible things online and promoting some very like dark conspiracy theories about the world. There's all like, oh, the Democrats are pedophiles and stuff like that. And the consequences did come down on him. He got dropped by his outerwear sponsor and his snowboard sponsor. He's a Swiss athlete and he's very obsessed with US politics if you follow him on social media. And you're like, that wasn't an endorsement of he endorsed Trump and got dropped. It was like he was endorsing dark conspiracy theories and promoting racist ideologies that then caused him to be like, oh, you got dropped. But I do want to see if there are athletes not afraid to like do something like against the norm and be kind of celebrated for it. Then I think that'll be the test that this isn't a thing of, you know, we're just endorsing if you're part of an in crowd um, endorsing one candidate and one policy, then it's okay. If you're, if then to me, if you're endorsing something anti that, but you're still also celebrated for that, you know, maybe you're argued against, like with counter good arguments, but it's also like celebrated. Then I think that's the real, the real test of the, that political talk and outdoor athletes and athletes in general is something that is reaching a point where we can talk about this stuff. And here, here's what I would want to add, because I totally agree with you on, on everything you just said. What I want is thoughtfulness. So if someone wanted to say, listen, and they don't have to go verbatim this way, right? This is the whole point. Like they can say what they want, but what I would want to see is if an athlete were to say, Hey, listen, I understand there's a lot of people that can't stand Donald Trump, you know, and I certainly think that this isn't maybe the most decent human being we've ever seen, or I don't think this is a real role model for children or something, but for reasons A, B, and C, these are policy things that I believe in and support. So like if, if something was done in that way, I would be interested in reading that. I might not agree with it, 
But I think that you are 100% right, and I do worry about this, that if it is, well, you are celebrated for being outspoken, if you say exactly the right thing, I don't want to be a part of that scene, right? And now, so what I would want from maybe the side I might not agree with is show thoughtfulness. And then you know what? Maybe the sides or on certain policy matters where I am personally standing closer to someone talking, you also be thoughtful. Like no one should get off the hook when it comes to that kind of thoughtfulness. Do your research, take the time to think through and craft the right statement. And like, let's just elevate. We all need to elevate. And that's what I really would like to see out of this. If, if you write some stupid fucking statement, then I don't care what side of the issue you're on. It's still a stupid statement. And I'm kind of against those. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Like if you, if you have good rationalization behind it, then you're free to say what you want to say. And if it's something that's near and dear to your heart, then, then say it. And that, that'll be the test is when we see things going outside. What have, you know, like for the most part, what I said was that the we care of as outdoorsmen cares about wildland preservation and climate change because it impacts our sports and our lifestyles more than anything. But if you go outside of that and you say you, you endorse a candidate or a policy or some sort of uh, thought that is different to that, but people embrace it, then that'll be the test if this thing is not just part of a, like a status quo thing to be said to be part of the in crowd. And it's something that's just saying that like, yeah, athletes are, are humans too, because I know it from a personal perspective of being a professional athlete with a lot of, uh, a lot of followers like people think you're stupid people think you're just a, a huck monkey on a pair of skis and you're like no i'm i'm a human and the whole like stick to sports analogy is like so stupid because you're you're like well you're a plumber stick to plumbing you know like if you're going down that road like we you know the athletes we we have our lives we have our bills we have our things we care about like i if i were to add something on top of that i care about healthcare a lot because the fact is i end up at hospitals a lot because i get hurt <laughs> so having some sort of affordable health care to me is pretty important as well so i'm going to probably endorse the, the politics and speak for the ones that i want to happen so i can uh, mend my broken bones at a affordable rate you know so but yeah no it's interesting to see and you know oh, thank god this election's behind us and you know don't have to see as many outdoor athletes screaming at us at all times to go vote <laughs> um I, because and i'm guilty of it just as as much as anyone but um yeah it was it's interesting to see because it definitely was a tidal wave and as i think it's the first time we've really seen something like that yeah, so next headline, speaking a little less serious, yeah. this is a headline and this is kind of like a story that I equate to the the uh, outdoor media's kind of, this is like our keeping up with the Kardashians and keep <laughs> the real housewives. It's our stuff we love to point and laugh at. So there's a, a headline from Travel and Leisure and the headline is man banned from Yellowstone National Park after rangers catch him cooking chickens in the hot springs. And this just falls in line with every one of those stories that you read of someone in Yellowstone, why it's always Yellowstone, <laughs> doing something really stupid like trying to pet a buffalo or you know like getting gored and whatnot and like we just love these stories of pointing and laughing at it and so this story goes into a guy who was trying to cook 
chickens in his hot springs at Yellowstone National Park. So I imagine he was trying to sous vide chicken, <laughs> um, making some really, really good. Like maybe he was like a good cook at this. Huh. I don't know. It doesn't say yeah. that. He's good. At, I mean, the thought of like cooking a chicken in a, um, a hot spring. It, it also follows on the heels of like we, we point and laugh on this, but I will. I found another article from 2016 by Wes Seiler, and Wes is an outdoor journalist. I really like what he does, and he does a lot of cooking things, a lot of car stuff. But he, for outside, he wrote how a story that's titled "How Natural Hot Springs Can Help Cook Your Best Camping Meal Ever." So here's a story from 2016, and then four years later, there's a guy getting busted for doing exactly that, and we're all pointing and laughing at it, and. And uh, um, I'm kind of like, well, did did Wes have a hand in this? Did this guy read this and uh, not realize that you shouldn't do this in a, you know, someone like Yellowstone? So um, I definitely found these kind of stories hilarious. We love to uh, laugh at the schadenfreude of it all. And I don't know, they just, every year, kind of like there's this like another level of dumb story <laughs> of you hear of average people in the outdoors. And here's the latest one. <laughs> I don't think I have a single thing to add to that. There isn't really much yeah, to break down about it other than I think like we love these stories. Yeah. Like we love to point and laugh as outdoorsmen. It almost goes back to the first story with Emily Harrington is like these, the uh, like it's just like fodder for, for the core industry to laugh at the, the average Joe going into the outdoors for the first time. But this one, I'm like, I'm a little bit more like kind of impressive. Like, I mean, it says they were found with two chickens in a sack placed in a hot spring. So he was trying to sous vide, which is a, like a high, I, I used to work as a cook and a chef. And it's this like really eloquent form of cooking that like you find in like three-star Michelin restaurants where you like put stuff in a in a bag and you cook it at 180 degrees. Uh, you put a steak in there and you cook it for like six hours and it's the juiciest, most flavorful thing ever. So here's a guy trying to sous vide a ch- two chickens in a hot spring. Okay, so I, I am good going with the I like the idea here that this person is a chef at some restaurant and this is going he had already like written the description of this and he was like this has been sous vide you know in the hot springs of Yellowstone and it was like he just with every good literary phrase the price was going up like another 25 bucks right and so he was like Uh, right like this is gonna I'm gonna sell this as the like yeah, by the time he had that description of this dish written, he was up to like $500, right? Do you think he like hand caught a chicken and killed it himself to do this? So it was like the most organic, like green style of like energy, like, like no energy intensive kind of cooking style. So it was just like the the most natural way to cook in the world. What I think is he did not do that but he's gonna lie and say he did because he's like oh that's perfect and that's just got i just jacked the price up another hundred bucks on this dish so yeah you think like actually yeah that's a good way because then he might win the out uh, outdoors people on his side when he's saying like this was an environmentally friendly way mm-hmm. like i was putting my own life at risk <laughs> being like severe burns from a hot spring <laughs> to cook with zero energy and in this most no- organic clean way uh-huh. so that'd be a good way for him to if he was playing if he had a PR team to like win the the, the good graces of the outdoors after we pointed and laughed at him, mm-hmm. that would be a good way to do it. Yeah.
Yeah. See, it's, it's it, this whole conversation of ours is coming down to marketing. It's all about it marketing. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess that's my life uh, as a professional skier and starting a company. I've always worked marketing. Yep. So I always see things from a marketing yeah. angle. So, so yeah, <laughs> this guy, it's just, he's got to market himself better. Right now, we're, we're pointing and laughing at him. If he can come out with a good PR team to, on the back of this, then, then we might get behind him. And then we might write some petitions to the judge. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. he is going to face some legal fines and possibly be banned from Yellowstone, so that that's a that's a downside of trying to sous vide chicken in a naturally green, organic, <laughs> environmentally friendly way. All right, what do we got next? Okay, last one. Um, the last story. So this is, I think we're going to just end up having one story every month, and we can call this the Blevins Corner, because Jason Blevins, if people aren't familiar with him, he's an outdoor writer. He used to work for the Denver Post before he was let go. Um, he was fired from there because of media shrinking. But he's, to me, like the best outdoor journalist we have, and he's always on the forefront of such good stories. I mean, he was the first one to me that was writing about after the pandemic hit and the influx of, of people to mountain towns and you know, seeing houses flying off the shelves and out in mountain towns before it was making major news. Um, he Blevins is kind of just always on the forefront. So I think we're going to dedicate one story every month to, to Jason Blevins because he's the best. And this one was interesting. This one is his most recent one from November 9th um, headline in the Colorado Sun, which is he, what he works for now. Um, are Colorado's backcountry ski stashes quote, trade secrets, a snowcat outfitter suing a former guide claims they are. So the story is that uh, Steamboat Powder Cats, an operation that works on kind of the backcountry and steamboat, is suing somebody for publishing a guidebook that is reference to the zone where this steamboat powder cats operates and let it be known that this the the area they operate in is full public accessible they don't have an exclusive tenure they're not allowed to keep people out of it they're even the road that they plow with their cat is allowed for people to uh, snowmobile up and to ski and this is a really really popular zone that both the public that is accessing it via their own power or with their own snowmobiles is allowed to ski it alongside them. So the somebody is publishing a guidebook um, about kind of the zone. Um, alongside it, they even say that they are kind of writing some guidelines on how to interact when, you know, like, let's say you you see a snowcat, how to yield to it, how to pass it, and kind of interact with this and share the space, because this is truly shared space. But the, the, the powder cat operation is suing to stop this basis on trade secrets. But to me, kind of seems like they just don't want more information and more people in their zone. To me, I, I've kind of got my take on it, but it's uh, it's an interesting story. And it kind of brings up some thoughts of like the, the popularization of backcountry scheme, the interaction of human power, snowmobiles, and, you know, these operations that, that are kind of been operating for years, but all of a sudden are getting crowded because it's so much easier to access the backcountry. Yeah. By the way, I know Andy. He lives here in the Gunnison Valley. We actually have an upcoming conversation with him. He puts out really impressive guidebooks. And this is one of the things that I wanted to talk with him about. I mean, this is the 
kind of the crux of the issue, right? Is like there are segments of the hardcore backcountry population who do not like things like guidebooks to exist because they tell people where to go and encourage people to go explore some areas that we might like to have to ourselves. And so I think that's just an issue. And and this story is taking things in a kind of a different direction, but related direction is that like, if we are putting out good information and in a sense, enabling people, telling them where to go, how to do it in a safe way, what to expect in the rest, well, chances are more people will go there. So I don't know, this is this thing in the outdoor space, right? In terms of like, hey, if I sort of made it into the movie theater ahead of time, well, I'm in, but hurry up and close the door behind me. And it's like, well, wait a second. There are legit issues on both sides of this, but I, I for one, tend to... I tend to be in favor of let's get more good information out, more good education out, as opposed to less in the hopes of keeping some zone left untouched just for me and my buddies. Yeah, no, and I I agree with that. And I think it's like, you know, there's this quote in here from Powdercat saying, what's really concerning is that the guidebook for the area has too much information and will give a false sense of confidence to the potential user. It could very well lead to trouble in the backcountry versus enjoying the backcountry, which I think at its premise is a complete BS argument, because that is the argument of, you know, you're going to take more risks if, and drive faster because you have a seatbelt on, you know, because seatbelts are now mandatory. Same thing as we said when beacons, that same argument, oh, people are going to take more risks now that they have beacons. Same to be said for when it came with uh, avalanche airbags, you know, and that argument always doesn't end up holding water. On the surface, it seems like it has some validity, but it never holds water because the more information that's out there, the, the, the safer that people become. The more tools that are there to can be safer, the better it is. So, um, you know, I have some sources that say that like yeah the 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 powder cats are actually really good guys and they are going at this with the best intentions but to me i think this lawsuit is kind of is just a way that they're trying to keep the the amount of people out there down that's it but to me it's like wouldn't you rather have the people that are out there better informed like knowing that hey there's a snowcat operation out there yield to them when they're coming in their cats do not try and pass them when they're on the road just take your time and when there's you know ski in these areas not those areas because that's the the zones they're going to be in so to me like it just seems a little like We've been here for a long time. We've been operating a for-profit business on public lands for a long time. You guys need to keep out, which is like just the wrong way to go about it. You're fighting a tidal wave of the fact that backcountry skiing is more popular than ever. We have more tools and more access to it, and we're going to see even more access to it this year because of the because of the pandemic and ski area and potential closures and people's discomfort from being in large groups so to me it's like there needs to be more information out there and the, what they're trying to do is just guard their business model from other people and you know the thing is like i believe we do need 
CAD operations, heli operations, mechanized access, because it allows people to get to the backcountry before they necessarily have the the physical capabilities or even the the experience or the education, but they can kind of dip their toes in and be like, wow, the backcountry is awesome. And maybe I want to learn about this. So I think we need these, but we don't need to like kind of lead everything to protect them and their business models. Like if, you know, powder cats, like if they can't operate in this space because it's getting too crowded, well, they have a little more option to go to other spots. Same goes for your average backcountry user. If that zone is too crowded, you have the access to go to other places. The backcountry is big. So on its surface, I definitely think this is kind of, I, I don't think it's in good faith. I think it's in trying to protect a business model. And I think it's kind of, kind of lame, but that's, that's, that's that in my opinion. Interesting. Yeah. It's the age old question of we're going to close this down and not let any new people in versus accepting and opening up a world that we might enjoy to more people. And I think for to, to punchline it or to close it out on my end, it's like, I believe in opening up the world, but better educating people. Right. And I mean, we deal with this, by the way, we've been talking about this a ton in terms of trail networks and mountain bike, you know, mountain biking and people trailheads, right? And I mean, especially during COVID and campgrounds and the like, this is not unique to skiing. I think that I I just in general, am, I'm kind of on the side of let's welcome more people, but those people need to then, we all need to be more like better and better educated so that we are not destroying these areas or not going out and dying. So we're just upping the educational ante in a way, the more people that are coming into a given given area and it and upping our level of responsibility. Yeah. I'm I'm hundred percent. And uh I'm with you all the way. I, I think we just more education is better. Guidebooks are a good thing. You know, we've seen guidebooks get published all around the country and yeah like oh have they exploded this the zone you're like well they've provided more knowledge and maybe more safety for it but you know that's the way it's going to be and like i always look at it as like if your little zone is getting too crowded the great thing is there's a lot more zones like i know as a tahoe backcountry skier like i know where it's going to be popular and i know what time to get there before other people if i want to get it first i also know the other zones that i can go to that aren't as popular like there's roadside hits that are definitely going to always be the most popular and i have the 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 capability to go elsewhere and you know to me i don't think guarding those secrets is necessarily the best thing same time like i'm not going to be like openly being like hey here's my secret zone go there but like the the fact is like if there's these guidebooks and there's this education out there it's not a bad thing it's not something to rebel against it's not something to sue to stop because ultimately you're you're, you're trying to hold up the ocean with you know a little sandbag wall like the it's going to over flood the the backcountry if you're trying to sue to stop people from going out there like the pictures that are alongside this is like this is before the guidebook is out and there's hundreds of cars at the, this trailhead like it's obviously already popular so why don't we give those people a little bit more information it's not going to like increase the amount of people that are out there by tenfold it's probably going to increase it maybe 10 to 15 percent and then at that point they're just better educated to it so um i hope it doesn't go far i hope he, they can publish the the guidebook because i think it's going to be better for them i also hope the powder cats can figure out a solution to continue their business model because i think they're it's important to have those things to introduce people to the backcountry 
Okay, well, I think that wraps up sort of our outdoors-focused headlines. But there is a kind of a big, big media story that I wanted to ask you about, because this has been pretty fascinating. What I would call sort of the spectacular rise and even more spectacular fall of Quibi. Have you been following this? Yes, definitely. And I think like we wanted to talk about this because we want to bring in this like, hey, where's media at as a whole kind of yeah. segment of this and this like the future of media, where's media and how can this apply to the outdoors? And so, yeah, the, the rise and fall of Quibi has been pretty fascinating. And, you know, they raised, God, it was it how over a billion dollars? $1.75 billion. And they had like the most heavy hitters of all heavy hitters when it came yep. to people that could raise money. And and it spectacularly failed. Mm -hmm. And the, the failure, they're blaming on a lot of things. But to me, it started from the very beginning. Because if you would have asked me like that concept and how much and who was behind it, I would have said, eh, it doesn't sound like it's going to work. Because the, the amount of people that were on the forefront of it were people that were generally like you were trying to create new media by people that are in their 60s and 70s. That was the majority of the, the board and the founders and the people that raise their money. You know, you have people like Meg Whitman and she ran uh, for governor in California as a Republican and was the head of, I believe HP or Dell, I forget, was a computer company. But you're like, they don't necessarily understand media that way. They kind of were like, oh, looking at the metrics, everyone's on their phone. Let's make media for people on their phone and they don't have time. But like that kind of those metrics and focusing on that data it, to me isn't the right thing to focus on like people are just interested in good media <laughs> and so to like format it down i thought it was just kind of from the get-go i was like i have no interest in subscribing to that like 15 minute shorts to watch on my phone like where am i going to watch that on my com commute you're like i don't want to watch it on my commute where am i going to watch that for my 15 minute lunch break no like i want to zone out for my lunch break to me it seemed like a failure from the start. <laughs> and so just to back up, in case somehow there are people listening to this who aren't familiar. So the idea behind Quibi and not just the idea, I mean, it was rolled out. This was a streaming service, which was all about creating sort of quote unquote high quality content and shows that fell mostly in the five to 10 minute range. And so I think the idea behind this was, you know, there's a bunch of whatever, a lot of garbage, free garbage all over the internet, and it's all kind of scattershot. And, you know, you might scroll through your through YouTube or something and come across one little video that captured your attention or or you scrolled across Instagram or TikTok and saw something and it kind of grabbed your interest. And then you just keep moving on and scrolled through some other garbage the idea at Quibi was, one, I think there was an assumption that we all just have really short attention spans and won't hang in there and like watch or listen or read anything that's longer than 10 minutes. So that was one assumption. But the idea was, well, let's just create this elevated experience and we'll bring in uh, Meg Whitman and a Jeffrey Katzenberg, two titans, right, of industry and we're going to have one of the biggest bankrolls ever for a new startup media company. Again, $1.75 billion. And then we'll just pay, you know, we'll get Kevin Hart and high level celebrities to create these 
little bite-sized shows, and that's the model. I mean, honestly, I think if I'm trying to be, you know, not a Monday morning quarterback this, if you would have told me ahead of time, do I think this could work? I think I would have had a strong, it might. But what I don't like about this is that I hate this idea of bringing massive amounts of money before you've proven any concept whatsoever and then just burn through that. And they literally, they, they launched and they shut down six months after launching. Yeah. No, it's, it's insane to me. And I like here, what you're pointing to is too, is like your understanding of media. So like I create content for a living and then now I'm creating my own series and do like YouTube series. And I started on that basis that people don't have that that attention span. And so when I started the 50, my original intention was like eight to 12 minute episodes when I first started making it, the the best feedback or the most feedback I got was, we want longer, we want longer, we want more. And I've slowly ended up going from four to eight minutes. Like I have an episode that's episode two, that's like six minutes long. And I'm like, whoa, that is so short. And now all our episodes are averaging between like 18 to 22 minutes and people are still, I want longer. So to me, it's like, it's not the format that matters. It's the story that matters. So, and to me, is like, yeah, like if they created, I don't know, if they created Netflix, that's something that's good and very competitive. And maybe it was more tailored to your phone. It could have worked. But just to like restrict yourself to this five to 10 minute format and to just, I, that that was what they were trying to sell to me. Not like, hey, this is an amazing amazing show. Um, this show is getting critical acclaim. Like to me, like Netflix kind of blew up as a content creator because of of House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, because all of a sudden that started getting major acclaim and popular appeal. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, Netflix can be uh, a really good content creator. And now they create amazing originals throughout their whole entire platform. And so to me, like, yeah, I, I maybe would have said it was a maybe, but my instance was like, I, I, my, first was like, why would I subscribe to this one? There's too many things to subscribe to now. We're just going to like, you know, it was like, hey, cable cutters and cord cutters to now it's like, you're going to spend $100 a month to try and subscribe to Disney Plus, to to Netflix, to Hulu, and to like to Quibi too, and to like your like new stuff. Like, you're like, this is just getting a little ridiculous. So you, you have to be really selective. And to me, it's an either or thing, not a continually add on subscriptions. Like this seemed supplement mental to Netflix. And to me, that was like, it's a tough business model to make. So, and, and I agree, like I've always said when we started arcade, like if someone gave us a million dollars to start arcade, we would have been out of business in the first year or two because we needed to prove it. We needed to prove that this model works that the, that every dollar we putting into it measure what was coming out of it. And like that slow growth business model is becoming more and more popular. The, the, business model of, of venture capital and just throw throw a billion dollars at it and see if it sticks is becoming less and less of a thing. And I think uh, it's this was like, you know, this was an experiment in that old business mo- venture capital business model and it failed spectacularly. To me, it's like we all laugh at it. They're like, you guys threw a billion, $1.7 billion at it, lost it all. And you're like, that was a waste of money. I wish you used that for better things. <laughs> All right. Well, rest in peace, Quibi. 
you kind of got what you deserved, I sort of feel like, anyway. Okay, well, to wrap this, I think this is probably something we're going to do each month in part because I'm always just curious, like what's been on your radar. I think we're hopefully going to end up with some good suggestions here. This is basically like, what's the best thing that you have watched or read or listened to in the past several weeks? This is just what's the stuff that's really kind of grabbed you recently? So for kind of start with the movie. So this movie I watched recently, Jojo Rabbit. I actually had no idea what it was. And at least my wife was kept being like, we got to watch Jojo Rabbit. And I was like, is this like a kid's movie or whatever? And it ended up being a, a, a satire of Nazi Germany and is... I thought was just unbelievably hilarious and I think was really important. It was incredibly controversial. Like the takes that I was reading on from respected sources that I like, like the New Yorker and New York Times are saying like, this isn't something to joke about in our time, being that there is a uh, Adolf Hitler played by Ta- Taika Watiti is being funny. And it was like, but no, this is like kind of some of the basis of what is important about like important about humor because to me like one of the things they always talk about is like the best way to take the power away from authoritarians is making fun of them making light of it and to me this really was it really highlighted just like how evil and how stupid the ideology of nazism and something like racism and things of uh, demeaning other classes is because and it showed it through humor and so it's to me it was really really powerful in that way because it just it's funny but it also enlightens you to the just like, yeah, how dumb these arguments really are that people have. And I think it's important for our time because we're going through some of that with with racism being uh, the, a topic of the of the time right now. So to like make fun of it, I think, takes the life out of it. And I thought I thought it was genius. I thought I really love Taika Watiti. Maybe there's also a personal my my cousin's fiance is a writer for him and didn't write write she's she's won some Emmys and she works on um she's the head writer for the Taika Watiti show What We Do in the Shadows and she's a writer for Atlanta and whatnot. So maybe I have a little personal connection, but um even though I've never met him, but Taika Watiti I think is a genius and I thought Jojo Rabbit was a genius genius movie. So Interestingly, Jojo Rabbit had been on my radar for a month or two. And it was, a f- I don't know, a couple weeks ago, I sat down to watch it. I made it through maybe, maybe 15 minutes. And I was like really uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable for sure. I, I, I turned it off because I was like, I, what is happening right now? Like, and I didn't, I wasn't mad at it. I wasn't angry. I was uncomfortable. And so I guess my question to you is like, should I go back and like stick with it? Or it's like, you know, those first 15 minutes are pretty indicative of the rest of the film. I mean, and it sounds like you might say, no, those are pretty indicative. It it maintains that tone throughout. It does. And then, you know, towards the end, it awfully gets a little more serious. And it really kind of like, it's that kind of, I always, you know, if if a movie can make you laugh and cry at the same time, you, it's an amazing movie and it kind of gets to that point. So I, w- I would stick through it. But yeah, those, that opening when all of a sudden it's like, he's talking to Adolf Hitler and it is like, whoa, what am I watching right now? And I, I thought, I, I think it's good to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's good. And I think that's what was powerful. And I think that's why it was controversial because it made people feel uncomfortable. That is what art is supposed to do. 
yeah, we have got to keep like art needs to challenge us. Comedy needs to challenge us. And so I am really anti, especially when it comes to art. If we're going to start saying like, we're going to cancel that comedian for saying whatever, or we're going to boycott this movie because we didn't like its take. That is a bad move for society in general to start like that's what the point is like that's yeah. art at its best when it is kind of challenging us and the rest so apparently i failed the art test yeah, so uh I, I will i, I will go back. <laughs> i will so, go back what what is your movie my movie it's a straightforward one it's a documentary uh, i've talked about it i think i mentioned it on one of our podcasts but the social dilemma tristan harris is kind of the primary figure behind this tristan is uh, kind of grew up in, I think, the Palo Alto world, went to Stanford, was a an ethicist at Google. And basically, I, I truly think that this is a documentary that every single person alive who, say, has access to the internet and a modern cell phone needs to watch, even more strongly think that anyone who has children needs to watch this film. And seriously, I mean that. But honestly, I'm going to leave it at that. I mean, watch it, draw your own conclusions. It is taking on sort of what social media and what a lot of these tech companies are kind of doing to us and what they are doing for us, right? And, you know, I think I'm happy to say there's a lot of good things that modern technology does for us. There are some darker aspects to us and we all just need to be at least aware of these things and then we can kind of come to our own conclusions but yeah the social dilemma yeah it's on my list too i gotta i gotta watch that up so yeah just good endorsement uh as far as a book so i've been reading and just finished killian journey's above the clouds which you know i would say the book as a whole like it's not this like well-crafted narrative it's not this like it kind of jumps all over the place but what i really really like about it is the fact that it's just like Killian's a really, really smart person and he has some really good thoughts about the mountains and his like his ideology of the mountains and his ethics of the mountains. And I thought it was it's really powerful in that regard, maybe because I feel like I connected with a lot of what he had to say. But I thought it brings up a lot of good points of his kind of his love for the mountains and why he doesn't do this necessarily for competition, why he does it because he just connects with the mountains in such a way. And it's it's interesting to see because you're like he's possibly the most dominant mountain runner and uh you know speed climber that's ever been you know in our history he's just as we regard as an alien and to see kind of his ideology behind it all is 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 really fascinating i think he brings up a lot of really good ideas on how he approaches the mountains and it's a, it's a good read to kind of not necessarily get like how I can be like Hillian Journey, but how I can understand like why he is who he is. And to me, it's, it's a really fascinating book. It's a short, it's an easy read. Something that I think was definitely worthwhile. I'm going to move real quick and, and just mention three books. One is by an author, Camilla Russo called the infinite machine. And it is basically, it's a book about cryptocurrency and the, origin story behind Ethereum. I'm going to leave it at that. But if you haven't already kind of been keyed in at all about sort of the rise of cryptocurrency, 
you should because it's it's here and and it's a wave that's coming and camilla russo's book the infinite machine is one of the best things i've read so far it's not the first book on crypto or anything like that but it's just it's going to open you up to a really interesting world another book uh that i've read recently is called no filter by sarah fryer and this is a history of Instagram. Beyond being a history of Instagram, it does a really good job of talking about sort of the rise of all of the biggest social media platforms. And I was kind of shocked how, how unfamiliar I was with a lot of details of that. And I didn't know that like, you know, Jack Dorsey at Twitter knew Kevin Systrom at Instagram and that they both knew Zuckerberg, you know, before like Instagram or Twitter was a thing. And it's kind of fascinating slash terrifying how small the circle was for the folks who have created some of these incredibly dominant media platforms today. So just, it's just an interesting thing. And I've learned a lot along the way. So, um, the last book I want to mention is uh, a book that I actually only started two days ago, and it's been pretty riveting and also kind of eye-opening and sobering. It's a book called Win at All Costs by Matt Hart. Our reviewer, Maddie Hart, put this on my radar. The subtitle is Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception. It basically just goes into doping and performance enhancing drugs and the rest. This is something that I think that I have generally been pretty naive about. This is a sobering and demystifying read about one particular company, but not just Nike. So I'll let you know when I get done with that. But anyway, those those are my books. Win at all costs is definitely on my list. I really want to read that just because... Eh deals with athletics. I like writing books about athletics and whatnot. So, um, and so last one, our TV show, I'm going to go with one of my kind of old favorites, but it's newest season, Last Chance You, um, the show about just uh, essentially JC being junior college football and season five, it takes place in Oakland. But the Last Chance You, it's like, maybe it's because I grew up in a football family. My dad's a football coach his entire life and I really love football um but just how it goes into what i think is actually some of the good that football can create and some of the culture behind it there's a lot of negative sides to it too and it's you can see that in actually season three and four which i really did not like um season one and two i was real big fan of but um season five and it's just like god the, the stories that go into it it's like it, it'll definitely make you cry because you see these these guys that are trying to make it in football as as their lifeline out of poverty as their lifeline uh, uh, is their only hope to make it and here is their their last chance to try and make it into a like a Division one university program whether they failed out of high school and so they had to go to uh, JC because they weren't accepted into a Division one university or even Division three or whether they got in trouble and and had to go back down to JC like this is their last chance and you can see like the amount of stress that puts it on the amount of like life that they're putting into this and I mean you have guys that are just sleeping in their cars to and 
playing football trying to make it and to me it's just like it is america and it is uh, these stories that like in season one and two you're just you're watching these stories you're like i didn't even know this goes on in america and it's it's really really powerful and it's told through the lens of football and i yeah i'm obsessed with that show i think it's amazing i don't recommend season three and four i thought that was the worst of its show mainly because the the, the coach was just an utter beyond asshole but season five i really really liked and connected with so I don't remember when you and I first talked about Last Chance You, but when that happened, I was like, okay, I like Cody like 20% more now because season one of Last Chance You is so incredibly good. But this is what happened to me in, I forget if it was after season three or, or season four, I was like, I'm done. So when you, you know, when you're coming back and being like, they're kind of back on track with season five, like I'm back in, like I will 100% watch this. By the way, related note, have you and Elise yet watched Friday Night Lights, the TV series, not the movie? No, I gotta, we gotta watch that because obviously we both love football. So that's gotta be on our list because we're done with Last Chance You. So we gotta go to our next football show. Okay. <laughs> now you need to be honest with me. I love the TV show Friday Night Lights even more than the movie Friday Night Lights, but I mostly want your honest opinion. So if, if you and Elise aren't into it, I can take it. I will be sad and I might cry, but I, I am curious, like if you are into Last Chance You, I can't imagine you're not going to be into Friday Night Lights. So still one of my ride or die shows of all time. Yeah. No, uh, we'll, we'll put it on our list. <laughs> okay. I'm kind of cheating because I've got two TV shows, but I'm going to, again, do this quick. Most surprising thing I've seen in 2020 and maybe I've seen in the last like five years, Ted Lasso. This looks like the stupidest show I ever could have imagined. I didn't read a review. I listened to, actually, it was Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, who have a podcast called The Watch. They started saying something about, like, this was actually pretty great, not incredibly stupid. And so I immediately stopped listening to them because I didn't want to, like, spoil the experience. I love Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is, like, my new spirit animal. This is the show I feel like we all need for 2020 and I encourage everyone to watch it and maybe I'll be like the only person on the Ted Lasso Island, but I'm a hundred percent in. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've seen that. It looks hilarious. I mean, just, it's a total fish out of water, take an American football coach and throw him into British soccer. So I, yeah, that looks, uh, it looks up my alley too. So here's the surprising thing about it. It's actually, for me, kind of a spiritual exercise. I'm not even claiming this is the funniest show I've ever seen. I'm claiming that I need to be more like Ted Lasso. That, that's, <laughs> my, that's my actual claim here. So I have, a, I have a goal for myself for 2021. And yeah, it's be more like Ted Lasso. I, I, I'm not even joking right now. The second thing I want to talk about, The Queen's Gambit. This is a movie about chess. And I am going to say that this is either the best sports movie of 2020. And if it's not the best sports movie of 2020, that is only because the documentary, The Last Dance, which was so incredibly good. And for somebody who grew up in Chicago, watching Michael Jordan at old Chicago stadium, like the last dance was incredible, 
And I'm a little bit torn whether the best sports movie of 2020 is The Queen's Gambit or The Last Dance. And again, I'll repeat, this is a movie about chess. It is unbelievable. That's it. That's what I got. Cool. Yeah, I, that's, yeah that's a bold <laughs> claim because Last Dance was, oof, that was good. Unbelievable. It came yeah. at the right time, right during our pandemic. It was, I that's think, right. That was just like, I mean, rarely do you get to like share across media some joined thing that everyone's watching at the same time, especially when it comes to documentary. But man, The Last Dance was amazing. So uh, it's Queen Gambit. Cool. Queen's Gambit, so, high praise. So is that, that's our, that's our show. That's our blisters, the news analysis, the reviews, the news, something. I don't know what we're calling it. But, yeah, uh, whatever whatever we end up calling it. I think that's our show. And I liked it. I really uh, enjoyed that. Yeah, I um, do too. I hope, uh, hope you listeners enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, we'll probably be, I'm, I'm probably going to be crowdsourcing news ideas for, for next yeah, month's show. Absolutely. Well, hey, man. It is always fun to talk. I appreciate the movie, book, and TV show recommendations. I will check those out. And till then, good luck with everything you've got going on. I know that you are still working hard finishing up a film of your own. Yes, I am. It's almost done. We're almost to the finish line. December 7th, it's looking like it's coming out. Oh, awesome. Uh, so yeah, uh, The Mountain Y is what I'm working on right now. So almost done. Okay. Well, who knows? Maybe next month that will make the the movie recommendations of mine. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's definitely going to make mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair. Um, hey, man, I'll let you go. Good to talk. And uh, we'll do it again real soon. Sounds good. Later, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast, leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. And we'd really love to hear your thoughts on the stories we've referenced here and the shows in the books that Cody and I happen to like. What did you think of them? Let us know in the comments section of the show notes to this episode on the Blister website. Finally, I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast, where we have an amazing conversation with the former CEO of Solomon, who then went on to become the founder of Hoka and is now the current head of Decker's X-Lab. It is seriously one of my favorite podcast conversations that I've ever had. I'm not kidding. So subscribe to Off the Couch wherever you get your podcasts, and then we will talk to you again tomorrow. All right, everybody, take care.